0: Take your Bible, if you would, join me today in Romans chapter number 12. Romans chapter number 12. Let me ask you a question while you're turning. How many of you ever um, assumed you didn't like something until you tried it? You have some things in your mind like, oh yeah, I I don't know, I don't like that. And then um, for whatever reason, you finally tried it and you discovered you actually liked it. There was a commercial years ago and uh, I don't remember actually what it was telling you to try, but the simple expression was, try it, you like it. You know, it was just, give it a try, and I think you're going to like it. Now, for me, there are a couple things that stand out. First of all, broccoli is one of those things that I knew I did not like, okay? How many of you grew up not liking broccoli, but you like it now? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you grew up not liking it, and you still don't like it now? Oh, that's so sad, Okay. Let me tell you what happened to me. So I grew up not liking broccoli. No, I, I know I don't like broccoli. And, um, and then I started to date, um, you know, this person that was to become my wife. And she prepared dinner for me one evening before we were married. And lo and behold, one of the things on the menu that evening was broccoli. Well, you know I'm going to eat it whether I like it or not because because I know who I like, and therefore I'm going to eat whatever she prepares. You know, it could have been dirt, and I'm like, it's wonderful. You know, I just <laughs> didn't care because I'm gonna eat whatever she fixes. Well, she prepared broccoli and like, wow, I like that. Now I will say before I had had it, you know, cooked to death, you know, so don't do that to broccoli, but I had it and, and it was really good. Um, how about this one? Now I do like these now and that is um, Brussels sprouts, Brussels sprouts. I didn't like Brussels sprouts. How many of you like them, but you didn't before? Oh, that's a mix of hands, okay? How many of you still like, no way, I'm not? Oh, lots of people, again, we need to have a church Brussels sprout potluck, okay? So, so a lot of people that still don't like Brussels sprouts. I do, now again, I like the way my wife prepares them. It used to be they were something I don't know they were it was not good all right so I like what she does and and they're good I like them let's see what's another one that I had written down a few things that I oh this one I like it now but I never did guacamole I know I heard people gasp out there do you know one of the things you're never supposed to do when you're preaching is talk about food So I've broken that cardinal rule of what you're not supposed to do. Well, guacamole, I never liked guacamole. At least I thought I didn't because it's green, okay? And it just didn't look appealing to me. But for whatever reason, I do like guacamole. And of course, who here doesn't like rhubarb? I mean, anybody not like rhubarb? Okay, a few people, who's never tried it? Who's never, wow. But you know, with all those hands, you didn't raise your hand that you didn't like it, so I'm gonna assume that you do. Okay, so you say, what does this have to do with our passage? Not a lot, but I do think it has has something to do with our passage. There is something about those things that I assumed I didn't like, and I had a belief that was fueling my dislike. But once I actually tried it, my belief changed. And when my belief changed, so did my behavior. Do you know, there are things that you and I hold to by way of belief, and if the belief is faulty, so is the behavior. Your belief system directly impacts your behavior system. We have changed in so many different ways. Like, oh, I used to believe this, but now I believe this. To have a faulty system of believing is going to directly impact my system of behaving. Today, we move into a new section in the book of Romans. The new section is the, the, the title of the message today. And that is simply from belief to behavior. There's a man named Albert Barnes and he he has notes that he has kept and published on the Bible. Listen to what Albert Barnes says regarding this idea of the passage that is before us today. None of the doctrines of the gospel are designed to be cold and barren speculations. They bear on the hearts and lives of people. And the apostles therefore calls on those to whom he wrote to dedicate themselves without reserve, without reserve unto God. Now we might ask ourselves the question, why would I do so? What would prompt my behavior to absolutely, without reserve, give myself to God? It's an honest and a legitimate question. What we have to know is we have to know right doctrine because it will have direct bearing on how we live our lives. The passage before us today is Romans chapter 12, verse number one look in your bibles if you will with me at this opening passage to this new section in the book of romans i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable unto god which is your reasonable service do you know nearly 30 times in the book of Romans, Paul uses this, this phrase of logic, of deduction. I'm deducing something, and so therefore, he inserts the word. Because this is true, because of all that's happened, therefore, we understand that. And there are some very significant therefores throughout the book of Romans. We won't consider, of course, all 27 of them. But notice a couple of these significant therefores in scripture. Romans 3:20, it's the therefore of condemnation. Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. The therefore of condemnation. In Romans chapter 5 verse 1, we have the therefore of justification. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the therefore of justification. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, it's the therefore of sanctification, the setting apart of the believer. And here the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, we have the therefore of dedication the therefore of dedication and that is of course the passage that is before us today it is this surrender this dedication that is the basis for the other relationships that paul's about to discuss in this final section of romans what he does is in the first 11 chapters he builds the most solid presentation of the christian faith recorded in scripture Now he says, beginning in chapter 12, through the end of the book, he gives us the bearing that that doctrine has in our lives. All of these things are true. Now, what's that going to mean for you regarding the way you live your life? Let's break this verse down, just Romans chapter 12, verse number one. Let's begin by looking at the basis of this commitment. The basis of this commitment. Okay, this is a big commitment. What's the basis on which you are asking me to make this kind of commitment? He begins it with, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. First of all, just consider that little expression, I beseech you. Now, we know it's not an expression that we use often today, but it is a great word to insert in context here. Now, it's also important that we know he's writing to believers. This is not just a general appeal to all of mankind. He is writing to those people who have passed from death to life. And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Because he is writing to believers, he's also doing something that shows a level of graciousness on the part of God expressed through the Apostle Paul that is almost unheard of. Certainly, it's unheard of in man's religions. Do you know what he just does? Do you know what he did here in this passage of Scripture? He says, I'm inviting you to something. Here's something that you should give every consideration to. We're not unfamiliar with commands. All right, if you're going to be here, this is what you're going to have to do. I command you, I'm giving you this instruction and really you don't have any option regarding. That's not what Paul does here and it's not what God through his pen is doing. He is making the most gracious of invitations that you and I can comprehend. After all that he's done for us, he says, here's something that you should give every consideration to. Do you know we see this pattern repeated when Paul's writing to Philemon in Philemon chapter 1, beginning in verse number 8, he says, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee, enjoin, that means I could command you regarding this. I could give you no option. He says, he goes on, he says, to, to, uh, regarding this, th- that is convenient, or this is what you ought to do. Yet, notice these words, yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He says, hey, 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 listen, this is what I'm doing. I could command you about this, but I'm not gonna do so. I, I know there's something that you ought to be doing, but I'm not going to force this. Here's what I'm doing, I'm giving you this invitation. Really, if you consider everything, you're gonna come to the same conclusion, this is what you ought to do. How different is this terminology from that which we often see in man's religion? Man's religion uses guilt to motivate, but God's pathway to himself, his walk with Jesus Christ, it is a walk of grace. So what is this beseeching on? There's no command, it's an invitation. What's it based upon? The basis is, certainly, I beseech you. And then he goes on and he says, by the mercies of God. Paul is not about to take us down some guilt trip saying, this is what you should do. Rather, he's exhorting us in light of all that God has done to respond with gratitude and not with guilt. Okay, now I want you to just put yourself in my shoes for a moment. This is imaginary, but it's really not a stretch. In fact, in my own life, I could use people with real circumstances, real settings that have really happened to me. But let's use just an imaginary situation. Let's say I have a friend whose name is Bob, and I've never had a better friend than Bob. He's my best friend. In fact, one time I was in some real financial straits. It was a difficult situation. And Bob came along right away, and Bob said, hey, listen, um, I'm going to loan you the money. And, and I'm going to do so interest-free, pay me back whenever you can, but I know you have a need, and Bob takes care of my financial need. In fact, when, when things improved for my financial situation, I started to make payments to Bob, and Bob said, listen, Jeff, um, I'm, I'm in good shape. God's been so good to me. I have removed the debt entirely." And I'm like, Bob, you don't have to do this. He says, no, 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 no. He says, it's something I want to do. I'm going to just forgive the debt. Well, I'm very grateful. Bob's the kind of guy that always remembers my birthday with thoughtful gifts. In fact, not only me, but he knows my family. He takes care of my children. He looks after them. He's the best friend I've ever had. He's the kind of guy I could have conversation with that's meaningful and thoughtful. And, and he is iron sharpening iron. Another friend, a mutual friend of mine and Bob's is in my home. We're talking and he looks just over my shoulder and he sees a book and he says, hey, Bob was just talking about that book. And I have it on my shelf. I said, yeah, I read that last year. It's a great book. And he says, Bob was just talking about it. He's looking forward to reading it. Hey, you should let Bob borrow that book. And my response is, you know, I've let people borrow books before and I never get them back so i don't really loan out my books and and our mutual friend looks at me says you're not going to let bob borrow your book and i said well i mean i think the world of bob but i just you know people have kept my books and so i don't really give out my books now listen Some might say that our mutual friend could manipulate me to give him the book. But my friend doesn't do that. He just leaves it alone. But any third party or an observant party looking at those circumstances would say, listen, Redlin, loan the guy the book. I mean, after all he's done for you, you're not going to do that for him? Now, that would be laying on guilt. Let me ask you this. If you had a friend like Bob guilt should not motivate you, wouldn't you be looking for an opportunity to express your gratitude? Wouldn't you be thinking like, man, if there's ever anything I can do for Bob, the guy who just does so much for me, if there's anything I can ever do for him, listen, if our mutual friend says, uh, oh, hey, you have that book. Bob was just talking about it. And I'm like, really? He, he wants that book? He, he wants to read it? I'm going to take the book out, open the cover, and say to my best friend Bob, enjoy the book, Jeff. Do you know what the Apostle Paul's saying? He's saying, listen, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I just want us to remember after 11 chapters of all that Jesus Christ has done for you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The greater our comprehension, of what God has done for us, the greater our commitment should be to Him. When I start to grasp the breadth and the depth and the length and the height of what Jesus Christ has done, oh, my response should start to grow and to swell and to overflow and what is there that I could do for Him after all He's done for me? Paul is simply saying, when I consider the therefore of the previous 11 chapters, who wouldn't want to do whatever it is that may be asked of us? No questions asked. So let's go on to this next section. We we see first the basis of the commitment, but let's ask, what is it that is being asked of us? So the second thing that we see is the totality, the totality of this commitment that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. First of all, present your body. He says we should present or offer our bodies. Again, isn't this a gracious God to request that which is already his? He's asking for something. It'd be like someone... um, I don't know, letting you borrow something, and then they ask if they could borrow it back. Now, it belongs to them, but now in gracious fashion, hey, um, do you still have that shovel, the shovel that belongs to them? You borrowed it a couple weeks ago, and it's sitting in your garage, and so you say, oh, yeah, 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 I I have the shovel. Do you mind if if I have that back? What God is doing for us here is, is he's saying that ye present your bodies. Who does your body belong to? You know, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul even uses this expression almost of shock or surprise. He says, what? Really, what he's saying is, didn't you know? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? And you're not your own. You're not your own. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore, it's another wonderful insertion of that word. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. And notice that last expression. Which are God's. These belong to God. There's a very real sense in which we are presenting our bodies to God and it is the most strategic thing we can do as a Christian. God, this belongs to you. I'm just giving back to you what is already yours. And the idea of present, it means that this is my privilege, not my command. It communicates this is an invitation that can be refused. Okay, I beseech you therefore brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies. Do you know every person in here who knows Jesus Christ personally is in one of two categories? Those who have said, God, I present to you my body, me. I present this to you. Or those who have said, no, not, not quite yet. I'm still considering. Uh, let me process all that that means this is written to believers. It is possible for a believer to say, no, I, I'm not prepared to do so. God certainly could have forced this upon salvation, but he is inviting us to present. The whole idea behind this word offering is simply offer, offer. Now, th- this offer of myself becomes my offering. Offering. And God is not asking you to make a sacrifice. God is asking you to be the sacrifice. And since it's written again to believers, I do understand it's possible for me as a believer to not make this offering. It should go without saying that it would be foolish to give our bodies if we were not willing to offer our whole selves to the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we get an understanding of how this offering is to be made. Verse number 9, then the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly, because with a perfect heart, they offered willingly to the Lord. This is just my willing presentation of my body as my offer, my offering. Okay, let's go a little bit further and see not only present your body, but it is a living sacrifice. Now today, we don't offer the sacrifices of a dead animal. And we might even ask the question, why not? Because it's no longer an acceptable offering. Remember, we were making offerings all through the Old Testament as pictures of the perfect offering that was to come. So no longer do we take our spotless lamb, the best lamb, the lamb with no blemish, is the picture of the lamb, Jesus. Its blood would be shed, sprinkled on the altar, and then that lamb would be be prepared. Its flesh would be placed upon the altar and it becomes really what the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament would have said is a holocaust, a holocaust. You say, well, whoa, that's a powerful word. That conjures up a lot of ideas. It means like, wow, this is is a whole sacrifice. The whole thing is completely offered, destroyed, literally. So what he's saying is, the, the Old Testament pattern, it is done away. The reality of the sacrifice has come, and now there's only one sacrifice that you should begin with. Oh, I know the sacrifice of our praise, but... But doesn't he have his praise when he has you in your entirety? So he comes and he says, I'm asking you, urging you to consider, give yourself a living sacrifice. Paul's gonna express this in in another way to the church at Galatia, and he says it this way. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, But Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know what he's saying? He's really re-articulating Romans chapter 12, verse number one. I'm crucified with Christ. I, I died, but yet I live. I give myself entirely to him, and yet I'm still alive. The living sacrifice... Again, it's the same idea we're going to we have read already in Romans chapter 6, verse number 13. He says, "Neither yield ye your members, your body, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, a living sacrifice." The word yield in Romans chapter 6, neither yield ye to this, but yield yourselves unto God. Same word as present. Present your bodies to God. Yield it to God. Our members or our bodies become the instruments through which God works. Now notice how our bodies are to be presented. We see the basis of the commitment. We see the totality. It's, it's me And now we see the nature of this commitment. The Bible says it is holy, acceptable unto God. Now, let me note, this is not an attempt to become holy so that we can offer ourselves to God. It is because if you are a believer, you are holy in Christ and therefore you are made acceptable. Ephesians chapter one, verse six, it says it this way. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Okay, Lord, this is who I am in you. I present now myself in my entirety to you for your service. So what kind of a sacrifice do do we then offer? Well, a a holy sacrifice. The word holy, again, it just means set apart. Something reserved for special use. Jesus would have said it this way in Luke chapter 9 verse 23 and he said to them all if any man will come after me it's a great word if any man will come after not before after me let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me so we notice that when we come after Christ not before we're saying that this offering comes without condition Lord, if I come before you, I'm gonna drop the terms. Uh, this is the basis on which I'm offering myself to you. But he says, no, 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 no. L- let a person come after me, take up his cross. In other words, all of my affections, my desires, Lord, my, my purposes, my goals, th- these, I, I put them on the cross with you. Now you are before, I come after you. And so he says, first of all, this is a holy offering. I'm coming, I'm setting myself apart for you. And then he says, acceptable unto God. Remember in the Old Testament, again, the only kind of sacrifice that could be offered was to be the perfect sacrifice. It was given totally, fully with a sense of complete abandon, a complete sacrifice, a complete sacrifice is the only acceptable sacrifice. You cannot offer to God a partial offering. It is an all or nothing proposition. We're presenting ourselves to allow him complete control. Okay, how many of you have ever been driving a car before and someone reached over and took a hold of the wheel? You ever had that happen before? We don't like to admit that, but normally the reason someone does that is because we're going in, in the wrong direction. Have you ever tried to have two people drive the same car at the same time? Um, Sometimes you'd say, well, yes, my spouse does that with me all the time, (laughs) okay? Do you know, for two people to drive the same car going to be really frustrating. This last week, as a church staff, we were doing, uh, we began a new book study, So typically, our our normal pattern is every week we get together and we read and, and we study and discuss a book. And we're reading right now a book by a man named Andrew Murray, and it's the book titled Absolute Surrender. If you've never read the book before, it's certainly worth your time and attention. One of the illustrations that Murray uses in his early chapters is that of speaking of absolute surrender... It's of a person trying to write with a pen with another person's hand on the pen at the same time. Now just to think about me writing my own name, my, now my, my own uh, handwriting is barely legible as it is. So if I said, hey, Dr. Zach, why don't you come up and let's try to write a statement, both of our hands on the same pen. Now we're not gonna do that, but, but it would be very frustrating To to get something even legible or slightly useful with two hands on the same pen at the same time, very challenging. Do you know, for a person to say, God, I'm gonna offer you some of me, I'm gonna offer you much of me, but I wanna keep my hand on the story of my life. I wanna have part in how this whole narrative unfolds. Lord, I'm gonna hold loosely but I still want to hold. You and I would understand that's not a workable situation. He's asking for this acceptable sacrifice. What kind of a sacrifice is acceptable? A complete sacrifice. God, I give you everything. You take the pen from my hand and God, you write the story. So, what do we see as we kind of wrap this up? Why would I do this? Okay, Pastor, I understand the basis of this, the the totality of it, the nature. What is the logic of this kind of commitment? Because what the Scriptures are asking for is a major commitment. What's the logic of this kind of commitment? The Greek word for reasonable which is your reasonable service, is, the Greek word is logikos, logikos. It's the word that we get our logic from. He is saying this is the only reasonable, this is the only logical decision that a thinking person can make. He's saying, all right, now listen, let's put our belief into practice. You believe all of these things, we've seen for 11 chapters, this is God. This is what he's done, this is what he wants to do. And now he says, okay, let's put your belief to practice in your behavior. And he begins to just, even in these next few words and then certainly through the next several verses, point out this is a reasonable, we might even say logical decision. The only sacrifice that now makes any sense to offer is the one that only you can give. No one else can make this on your behalf. It is the living, logical sacrifice of yourself. Again, notice the logic that is expressed in the teachings of of Jesus elsewhere. Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now, his application is different, but his insights are the same. He's saying, hey, listen, believer, to us today, those who have passed from death to life, he's saying, believer, you can hang on to your own life. But what's the conclusion of that look like? He said, well, I I don't know what the conclusion looks like if I give myself in my totality to God. I don't know what that looks like. I know, but don't we call this the Christian faith? God, I, I don't know what it all looks like. I just know you. And I know your plans are good plans. I know the thoughts that you think toward me are good thoughts. Lord, I don't understand the whole way, but the only logical, reasonable thing for me to do is to trust my life to a God who knows the beginning from the end. You're a God who is this omniscient God. You know it all and I don't. How could I presume to know how to navigate the complexities of my life in a manner that is better than you? So the apostle says this is the logical conclusion for any person regarding the realities of their life. When we offer something as a sacrifice, we understand that we are surrendering our rights to negotiate. We're saying in effect, God, all that I have is yours. My hands, my eyes, my feet. The more we think about this in light of all that he's done for us, this is not a payment to earn what God has done. Rather, it is what we call a present. We present our bodies. It is my gift in response to his. Really, when we start to think about it, this is no sacrifice at all. David Livingston was the renowned missionary that took the gospel to the heart of Africa notice what livingston wrote in his journal he was commended by many for the incredible sacrifices he made with his life listen to his journal notes people talk of the sacrifice i've made in spending so much of my life in africa can that be called a sacrifice is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward of healthful activity the consciousness of doing good peace of mind a bright hope of a glorious destination hereafter. Away with such a word, such a view, such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and sink but let this be only for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us and never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Halfway commitment is irrational. Full surrender, reasonable, logical service. One man, he he was writing regarding, well, how, how do I even know how to offer my entire self? He wrote about the following, and he said in a succinct fashion, to be a Christian means to give as much of myself as I can to as much of Jesus Christ as I know. Lord, I know, I I have this this fallible, finite human mind. How do I even know how to give myself in my entirety to you? Listen, Lord, this is what I know to give. This this is as much as I can. You may ask something more that I'm even unaware of, but God, as much as I know of Jesus Christ, as, as much as I know of what I have, I offer this to you that is a reasonable sacrifice her name was Frances Havergal she wrote what she called her hymn of consecration she had come to a crossroads in her life and she'd been a believer for decades knowing Jesus Christ on her way to heaven but she knew there were places in her heart in her life that she did not want God to have She wrote one day that she realized she must sacrifice every corner of her life to God. She wrote, and I quote, I realized there must be full surrender before there can be full satisfaction. What a powerful quote! There must be full surrender before there can be full satisfaction. Do you know what we normally want? We want the satisfaction before the surrender. And God says, take a step of faith. Trust me. What kind of steps please God? Only those steps of faith. God, I offer you full surrender. I do desire your full satisfaction. Francis Havergal wrote the hymn that I've been referencing, and we've been singing it for the past 150 years, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands, let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet, let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. Take my voice and let me sing always, only for my King. Take my lips, let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love. My Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasures' store. Take myself, and I will be ever, only, all for thee. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service.